This episode of the Closet Champion Podcast is brought to you by Shockmaster Home Remodeling. Take home improvement to the next level with Shockmaster Home Remodeling. Those walls won't stand a chance. Mention this ad to get the special Stormtrooper discount exclusively for listeners of the Closet Champion Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Closet Champion Podcast. I am your host, the reigning, rarely defending, highly disputed champion of wrestling podcasts, Mike Mueller. On today's episode, I will be doing five top five lists in rapid-fire style, and this was thanks to the great suggestions by Troy Turnwald and Michael Bach over on the Closet Champion Facebook page, which if you're not already following and liking that page, then shame on you. Go ahead and do that right now. Pause this podcast, go like the page, then jump on right back. I'll give you a moment to go ahead and do that. Okay, great. Now that you're back. Uh, normally, this would be a Hell in a Cell prediction episode, as I normally do before any WWE or AEW pay-per-view, and I will tell you who my winners are, but if you want the in-depth discussion, the reason why I make my incredible picks, you're going to have to check out the Bob Culture podcast, which I will be linking tonight once it drops, uh, the amazingly talented Rob Williams, host of the Bob Culture podcast, had me on as a guest yesterday, along with Kimmy So Cool Sokol from Kimmy Talks Wrestling and Tony Blackwell, host of the Tornado Tag Podcast, amongst other things. Actually, Tony, Kimmy, and Rob all do a whole lot of work. They are major content producers in this little world of online wrestling podcast that we do. Uh, They are a true inspiration to me. I was so humbled and thrilled to be able to sit down and talk with them. I can't wait to do it all again, hopefully very, very soon. It was an absolute blast. It was probably the most fun I've had talking wrestling in a long time. So just once again, I want to thank them all so much uh, for the opportunity, specifically Rob, for having me on his show. I am very humbled. And as Casey Navarro would say, I am blessed. So thank you for that. Uh, As far as the predictions go, like I said, if you want the real in-depth reasons, you're going to have to check out the Bob Culture podcast, which I will link. It should be dropping tonight, so look for that. But uh, real quick, hey, rapid fire. I guess we're doing six top five uh, lists, and the first top five list will be the top five winners of the Hell in a Cell matches that are happening. I've got Roman Reigns defending if that match even still happens. It's been moved to tonight on SmackDown. Although I assume there's going to be some sort of shenanigans that get it on the pay-per-view as well. So assuming that Roman Reigns has a title match at Hell in a Cell, he's going to win. It doesn't matter who he's facing, whether it's Rey Mysterio or someone else, he's going to win. I think Rhea Ripley is also going to retain, although I think this is the most vulnerable pick that I have. Charlotte is definitely a threat to this title, and we did a real good discussion on that on the podcast. Uh, I think Bobby Lashley also defends. I think he's going to 
sort of Andrew McIntyre being in the title pitcher for a little while. Hopefully they give Drew some time off and let his body and his character recover. He needs it very badly, in my opinion. I think Alexa Bliss is going to do some weird fire magic shit that she does and defeat Shayna Baszler in a match that will likely involve a lot of cinematic elements. I'm thinking sort of like Alexa Bliss versus Randy Orton, that match. Uh, And then also I think Bianca Belair is going to stay at the top of the SmackDown women's division by defeating Bayley. So to sum it up, I think all of the champions are going to remain champions, and I think Alexa Bliss is going to do what Alexa Bliss does, and that's be wonderfully weird, and hopefully we get some closure on this very bizarre storyline. So now let's get to the real top five, top five lists. I'm going to start with the top five cinematic matches that happened during the pandemic era. Now, the pandemic era certainly gave us more cinematic matches than we had ever seen before, but it certainly wasn't the creation of cinematic matches. They've done them before in the past to varying degrees of success, usually not very successful, but we got to see a lot of them during this era because obviously with no crowds, you got to find new ways to tell an engaging story if you don't have the fans to react to you. So we saw a lot of cinematic matches over the past year and a half, My number five cinematic match is the Firefly Funhouse match from WrestleMania 36 uh, between John Cena and Bray Wyatt. I have it listed at number five only because it wasn't really a match at all, Um, but it was definitely a psychological tour de force. It completely broke down John Cena's entire career, and it was done in a weird, fun, goofy way. I think that they knocked this one out of the park, and like I said, the only reason that it's number five is because it wasn't technically a match at all. I don't think a single punch was thrown, so that gets number five. Number four is the street fight that happened on AEW between Sting and Darby Allin versus Brian Cage and Ricky Starks. I thought this was a perfect way to use Sting, uh, cinematic matches, and his kind of character plus his age just seemed to go hand in hand. It was brutal. It was way more violent than I thought it was going to be. I was intrigued. I was engrossed. All those good things. They did a really, really fun job. Uh, It definitely had that grimy, gritty vibe that just sort of goes with Darby Allin and with Sting. So great job, great pacing all around. A very fun match. Number three, I have the Haunted House of Terror match that was on NXT between Dexter Loomis and Cameron Grimes. And these were our two guys who just totally get their characters. I think it was the perfect setting for both of them. Cameron Grimes is a great person, and we like to laugh with him, but we like to laugh at him even more. And Loomis was the perfect psychopath, silent serial killer type to terrorize Cameron, make him cry and beg and scream like a little girl. It was wonderful. It was so fun. It was comedy and horror blended perfectly together for a really, really fun experience. My number two cinematic match of all time, or not of all time, of the pandemic era, was the Money in the Bank ladder match that happened at WWE headquarters, the corporate uh, ladder match, as it was called. It was so much fun. It was sports entertainment at its absolute best. Of course, there were some nonsensical moments, but the whole thing is pretty nonsensical. So, you know, who cares? I loved uh, Dana Brooke going to grab the uh, the 
fake briefcase that was for some reason hanging above a conference room. I love the spots in the cafeteria and in the weight room. Just lots and lots of fun spots. They really utilize their environment very well. It was a total blast. I love that Otis won the men's Money in the Bank ladder match by literally never even climbing the ladder. It literally and figuratively fell into his lap and then it was ripped away a couple months later, but we don't talk about that. That doesn't impact how great of a match this was. It was super fun. It definitely has a lot of rewatch value. The only cinematic match that I think has more rewatch value is the number one on this list, which of course, the best cinematic match of the pandemic era has to be the Boneyard match. Undertaker and AJ Styles, WrestleMania 36. I think anybody who says differently is trying too hard to be different, to be honest with you. I think this is pretty objectively the best cinematic match for good reason. Uh, It was a glorified street fight, really. So it was still at its core, a wrestling match, um, sort of a no-holds-barred, falls-count-anywhere kind of match. But unlike a lot of the other cinematic matches that didn't really focus too much on any wrestling, we still saw a lot of wrestling. We still saw a real fight. Uh, It reminded me a little bit of the Sting and Darby Allin cinematic match where that sort of same, this is a real fight kind of vibe versus this is a movie kind of vibe but they blended the two together wonderful intros undertaker riding out on the hog of course uh, aj's hand coming out out of the grave at the very end um very horror movie uh michael myers-esque it was just a lot of fun they did such a good job with it uh i think it was it would have been a great match anyway, even if it was just a street fight and they didn't have all the bells and whistles and special effects, but you throw all that stuff on top of it and it makes what was, for me, the best cinematic match of the pandemic era. So that's the first top five list, second top five list. Uh, and that one, by the way, was inspired by Troy. Troy made that suggestion. The other one that was suggested to me by Michael Bach was top five dream matches and I put a little caveat on this. I'm, I, for my list, I have top five dream matches that could have happened but didn't, meaning that both of these uh, participants were in the same company at the same time, both presumably at, at the peak of their careers. These are not like fantasy booking, like I'm not going to do Andre the Giant versus Braun Strowman because they're... Andre the Giant was dead, maybe before Braun Strowman was alive. I don't know how old Braun Strowman is. But the point is, you're not going to see something like that on this list. These are only matches that could have happened. My number five dream match that should have happened is Randy Savage versus Chris Jericho. These guys were in WCW from 95 to 99 together, and I don't know how they never got together for a match. Both of them can work with anybody. Both of them are incredibly charismatic I think really the only reason why we never saw this match come to fruition is because for the most part, while they were in WCW a lot together, they seemed to be faces at the same time, and then they seemed to be heels at the same time. When Jericho came in, he was the white meat baby face, and Savage was still a baby face feuding with the NWO. Then by the time Savage left and came back as a member of the NWO, we had already seen a Jericho heel turn. So it just, they never really, they always sort of stayed uh, parallel with each other and their paths never crossed. And I think we as wrestling fans are the losers ultimately in it because we never got to see that great match. 
Another match that would have been great from WCW at this time. They're actually five, four, and three are all from WCW. Number four on the list, I've got Booker T versus Dean Malenko. This is one, unlike Savage and, and Jericho, where I can understand why it never happened because they were both heels or they were both faces. I mean, Malenko was a fucking tweener if there ever was one. He went back and forth between face and heel. And Booker T, really, I mean, Harlem Heat were heels for a while. But for the most part, Booker T's entire singles career, he was a face. I think this would have been a great uh, clash of styles. Booker T can definitely work with smaller guys. I think it would have been fun to see Dean Malenko like do do a wrestling psychology Bret Hart style match where Malenko just goes after Booker T's legs. Booker T gets his high spots in, but they're not as effective. You can have it go either way. I think these two would have torn the house down. They both know how to tell an in-ring story like nobody's business, and they both have move sets that are absolutely incredible. I think Booker T has one of the more underrated movesets in the history of wrestling. He is a very, very talented man. Number three on my top five dream matches that could have happened but didn't, Scott Hall versus Arn Anderson. How the hell did this match never happen? For all of the NWO and Four Horsemen matches that we'd seen, I mean, that was pretty much all of... 96 and a lot of 97 we never saw these two get in the ring one-on-one they were in the ring a lot together but they were always in tag matches or in world war three type matches we never got a one-on-one match and man you want to talk about two guys that can sell and can tell a story in the ring scott hall and arn anderson tell me you don't want to see arn anderson pull a spine buster on scott hall and you don't want to see scott hall do a, a fallaway slam on double a i think it would have been killer I, that is a pay-per-view main event anywhere in the country as gorilla monsoon would say but it's a match that we never got and it's it's a shame my number two and my number one spots are both from the wwf uh number two dream match that could have happened but didn't for whatever reason Sherry Martel versus Luna Vachon. How does this match not happen after WrestleMania 9? The storyline was set up for it and everything. Sherry was in Tatanka's corner. Luna was in Shawn Michaels' corner. They ended up fighting on the outside. It was kind of a one-off for Luna to be with Shawn, and I guess that's why the storyline dropped. But you didn't need their connection to their man at the time for that match to work. I think these are two of the more underrated trailblazers in WWE and women's wrestling really period you know you, you hear a lot of mentions of the early trailblazers like Bull Nakano and Medusa and even going way back with like Wendy Richter and Leilani Kai and of course Fabulous Moolah and all of them you don't hear in my opinion you don't hear enough talk about Sherry Martel and Luna Vachon they were both badasses they could both go in the ring and I think they would have just ripped each other apart for the sake of our entertainment dollar, and it would have been a lot of fun. But we never got to see it. Uh, like I said, Luna went off with Bam Bam shortly after that. Sherry wasn't in the company too much longer. She ended up going to WCW. But, man, right after WrestleMania nine, we really should have gotten a Sherry versus Luna match, in my opinion. And the number one dream match that could have happened but didn't is The Rock versus Shawn Michaels. And I think we would have eventually gotten the match if Shawn Michaels didn't hurt his back in 98 and have to retire for four years. I think this would have been a great match for 1999 or 2000. 
Maybe it wouldn't have happened at all. Apparently, there was a lot of backstage heat that prevented this match from ever getting off the ground. Uh, the Rock, from what I understand, from what I've read, I haven't talked to Dwayne lately, so I can't speak personally. But from what I understand, The Rock was not a big fan of Shawn Michaels and the the, the click in general uh, at that time, and didn't really trust Shawn to do the job if that's what it would have come to. Who knows at that time or, or what it would have been, but Sean was definitely difficult to work with before he found God and came back and was a better human being. But don't tell me that there wasn't a way to make this work somehow. And oh my God, of all the dream matches, you go, how has The Rock never faced Shawn Michaels? That is a great, great question. So that's number one on my list. Real quick recap in that. Savage versus Jericho. Booker T versus Dean Malenko. Scott Hall versus Aaron Anderson. Sherry versus Luna, The Rock versus Shawn Michaels, all five dream matches that we should have gotten and never did. Oh, well, that's what wrestling video games are for, right? And speaking of wrestling video games, here are my top five wrestling video games. Yes, your boy can segue when he wants to. I just don't want to all the time. Uh, My number five greatest wrestling video game of all time Saturday Night Slam Masters, baby. This was a Super Nintendo game arcade style not a whole lot of complexity to it but i really enjoyed it i thought the characters were really unique and i thought there was a surprising amount of move variation between the wrestlers given the time of its release you know everyone has the punch and the kick and everything like that but each character had to have at least four or five moves that were unique to them it was a lot of fun a great replay value you just kind of tour if you've never played it you just kind of tour around and you got to beat different people you can do one-on-one or you can do tag matches tag matches were always a lot more fun there are also tornado tag matches which makes it really interesting and there's a game that there were weapons involved a game that was really ahead of its time so saturday night slam masters gets number five on my spot number four on my spot wwe 2k19 i think the story mode was great it was a little short but it was fantastic the graphics and the gameplay are smooth as hell which is something that you can't say about 2k20 or a lot of the other ones you know it's so weird since 2k took over a lot there was a lot of complaint about every game sort of felt the same and it was sort of like that madden-esque thing where you just made small adjustments each year and slightly tweaked the roster and that was it but i disagree because i i had bought uh i had bought 12 13 14 15 and then I didn't buy another 2K game until 19 because just what I had saw and what I read and when I sampled the games, I didn't think there was enough of a jump or a difference. But I think 2K19 just hits on all cylinders. The roster is insanely deep. The The moves are very in-depth and the controls are a little bit... Uh, complex but i like that it gives me a lot of control if i specifically want to do a german suplex i know exactly i need to hit left and x and then when i get my guy in the grapple i gotta hit down and hold x and it's a lot to remember but if you do it's it makes for a very very real experience and as far as any of the 2k games go i think 2k19 is where they peaked and we'll see what the future has but For the time being, it's the last WWE game that I'm going to buy for a while. Like I said, we'll see. 
Number three on the list is WrestleFest, baby. The best wrestling arcade game of all time. I'm not even listening to another option. You had the Royal Rumble in there. You had a great selection of characters. Again, you had unique moves, not quite as customized or specialized as we would see in the following few years. Uh, Games really developed at a rapid rate in the 90s, but this is the best arcade game of all time. It deserves a spot on this list. If I were to have one arcade game in my house, it would be WrestleFest. That is the dream man cave game, is WrestleFest. So if anyone wants to uh, buy me a very, very expensive Christmas gift, you know what to get me. Uh, Number two on my list of greatest wrestling games of all time is literally any Nintendo 64 game made by THQ. Uh, You had WCW, NWO World Tour. You had Revenge. You had uh, WWE uh, or WWF WrestleMania 2000. And then, of course, No Mercy. Most people say No Mercy is the best of these games. I'm not going to really argue that. I was more of a WCW guy at the time, so I played a lot of WCW, NWO Revenge. But these games were not graphically... um, the best looking. I think PlayStation games tried to um, focus a little bit more on the graphics and their games that came out at the same time were definitely more visually appealing, but the gameplay was not even close. Uh, it's so much fun. It's I actually dusted off my N64 not too long ago and threw Revenge back in and it holds up. It, a lot of the old wrestling games won't hold up just because gaming technology has improved so greatly in such a short period of time. But any of those N64 games, I promise, especially if you were watching during that time and you know the guys, you're going to have a blast playing any of those games. Uh, so that's number two. It's I know that's kind of a cheap number two because it's really number two A, B, C, D. But they're still all number two because to me, the greatest wrestling video game of all time was SmackDown Shut Your Mouth. Now, everybody says just bring it is there. That seems to be the uh, the consensus for the, the five SmackDown games that came out for PS2 or PS1, PS2. Most people seem to gravitate toward just bring it. I gravitate toward shut your mouth because, like I said, with 2K19, I really enjoyed the story mode of that game. The story mode for SmackDown Shut Your Mouth is my absolute favorite uh, it's it's sort of an open world sandbox, a little bit version, but the the linear story that gets told throughout it is fantastic. You have a lot of control over what your character does and who your character teams with and who he goes against. There's it it felt it just felt like you're really there and you're really in control and you're really making these decisions. The only negative about it is it lasts for two calendar years and that's the end of the story. I wish that they threw in some sort of um, kind of like a never-ending epilogue like the storyline in 2K19 has. But again, this was PS2. Technology probably wasn't there. They had a lot of other stuff they wanted to get in the game. Um, and the gameplay itself is fantastic as well. So you got a great storyline, great gameplay. The replay value is through the roof. The roster is incredible. It's so much fun. So yeah, number five, Saturday Night Slam Masters. Number four, WWE 2K19. Number three, WrestleFest. Number two, any N64 game made by THQ. And number one, SmackDown Shut Your Mouth. Moving on to the next top five list, number four of the five top five lists, 
is top five character debuts that happened in wrestling. Now, this is not necessarily the person's first match, uh, and it might not even necessarily be their first match in said company, but it's the first time that that character was displayed on TV moving forward. So, for example, Dustin Rhodes had been in the WWF, left to go to WCW, then came back in 96 as Goldust. I could count Goldust as a character debut, even though Dustin Rhodes had already been in WWF. So that's what I mean by debuts, is specifically for that character, that that packaging of that wrestler at the time. So number five on that list, I've got Taz debuting at Royal Rumble 2000. This was, you know, peak Attitude Era. ECW was as popular as it was ever going to be. They were going to be out pretty soon, but more people knew of ECW at this time than ever had in the past. The fact that it took place in New York City, I think, is huge. It was critical that it was an East Coast debut for someone like Taz, just because the majority of the audience knew who he was and you got the reaction that you needed. It was also a huge debut because Taz goes on to win against Kurt Angle in his first match at that Royal Rumble. And Kurt Angle, up to that point, I believe, was undefeated. So it was a big, big way to introduced Taz. They did it smart by having it on the East Coast, so you got the in-arena pop, and then it was also smart to have them get a win over someone like Kurt Angle, who had been undefeated, to tell you, in case you didn't know who Taz was, in case you didn't know what uh, ECW was, this was a great way to go, oh my god, this guy's serious. Now, as far as the rest of Taz's WWE in-ring career goes, take it or leave it, but the debut was amazing, and I won't turn that down for anything. Number four on the list is the Shockmaster Baby, the sponsor of this episode. It was Clash of the Champions 24, and I know that this is a joke, but it's not really a joke, because if you think about it, when you talk about memorable debuts, Good or bad, you have to talk about the Shockmaster. It was Clash of the Champions 24, uh, Flair for the Gold segment with Ric Flair. He's supposed to burst through the wall like a goddamn Kool-Aid man, and the explosion goes off, and the wall explodes, kind of, but not all of it, and the bottom's still intact, and uh, the Shockmaster, formerly Tugboat, goes to step through it, and what does he do? He trips... He falls, his bedazzled Stormtrooper helmet falls off his head. Everyone on the stage is laughing, Ric Flair's laughing. This is as bad of a debut as you could possibly have. It was so bad, in fact, that when the Shockmaster then started wrestling, they didn't even go with that gimmick. Like, the Stormtrooper helmet was gone. He had this, like, furry uh Pete Dunne style uh, robe that he was wearing, all that was gone. They made him like a construction worker. I guess the hard, he and he came out in a hard hat. I guess that was a nod to him falling through the through the wall. And they they tried to laugh it off and make the best of a bad situation. The character was screwed after that. Um, he, he had no traction. He had a very short run. It was very immemorable, if that's a word, unmemorable, unremarkable, whatever. It, look, it's early, but the one thing that we'll never, ever be able to take away from him is that debut. So Shockmaster gets the number four debut. Number three, I've got Scott Hall 
1996, coming through the crowd for WCW Nitro. You know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. And this was the birth of the NWO, the genesis that, of course, wouldn't be named uh, for a couple months later when Hogan joined and they officially coined the term. But nothing set the wrestling world on its ear like Scott Hall jumping ship. We were really, really blending the lines of reality and kayfabe. This was a new direction, not just for WCW, but for wrestling in general. The wrestling world changed because of the NWO. And that started with Scott Hall coming through the crowd. And while the change in the wrestling landscape certainly didn't happen overnight, you can definitely point to this moment in time as being where the change really started from sort of cartoonish, aimed at kids and preteen, you know, that that demographic, to a, a older, more mature, quote-unquote, smarter audience. And we've got Scott Hall to thank for that. So that gets number three on my list. What could be better than that? Well, a couple things. The number two debut, 1997, In Your House, Bad Blood, Kane. Interrupting the first Hell in a Cell match. See, Hell in a Cell, we're, we're tying it all together. It's topical. Uh, between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker, ripping the door off, coming in. Of course, the Jim Ross famous, by God, that's gotta be Kane! Uh, it was such an impressive debut. I actually have I have goosebumps right now thinking about it. Uh, it was that incredible. The fire goes off. He's such an impressive looking monster. It's both of those guys. Sean and Undertaker had put on a great match. That was what made it so memorable and so special too. Was we had seen a great match for 25 minutes before we even got Kane. Then. On top of all this crazy action, top of blood being everywhere, all these insane high spots, we've been taken on such a ride. We're we're emotionally exhausted. We can't handle anymore. Oh, 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 wait just a minute. Yes, we can. We can handle the debut of the Big Red Machine. Uh, it was awe-inspiring. It was impressive. There had been a long buildup, so there was this mystery of who Kane is, but we didn't know what to expect at all with Kane. There was no pictures of him. There was no hint or inkling as to what he would even look like. So then when this freaking horror horror movie monster comes out and just puts everyone's jaws on the floor, it was really, really a special moment and one of my favorite debuts of all time. It was my second favorite debut of all time, short only to Y2J. Monday Night Raw, August 9th, 1999. Jericho makes the jump. He's done WCW. He's on WWF. There's the Y2J countdown to the millennium that's going just for weeks and weeks. And what's going to happen? And when is it going to go off? And I love the way that they did this for so many reasons. Um, One, it's a great way to debut anybody. But two... Doing it so the clock would expire, not at the beginning of an episode or at the end of an episode, or the segment is based around it. It was done in a very um, guerrilla style way where it was the middle of the Rocks promo. So nobody's expecting this countdown to hit zero at that time. It's not that we've forgotten about the countdown. It's just you sort of expect 
the clock hitting zero to be its own thing, its own segment. But no, it happens smack dab in the middle of the rock. So then we get an immediate, the buzz is crazy. Everyone goes nuts as soon as it goes off and you see Jericho and he spins around and he does the whole thing. The pop is fantastic. But then to immediately give him a promo segment with The Rock and The Rock doing what he does. A lot of I heard a lot of people say they thought The Rock buried Jericho in this. I don't think he did. I thought they played off each other perfectly. He was continuing his sort of comedic heel character and the transition so well. Uh, at this point, you know, very few people who were watching WWF didn't at least know what was going on in WCW. So it's just such a fun moment, and it, it really... For the career that Jericho had, this was the perfect way to set everything in motion. It was just a big, dramatic, interrupting of all people, The Rock, uh, to come in and say, no, 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 this is about me now. This is my time. And he had a great run. First ever Undisputed Champion beat uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock in the same night. So everything worked out. Uh, everything came up Jericho uh, as the years went on. And he was definitely set off on the right foot with that. So my top five character debuts, Taz at the Royal Rumble, Shockmaster, Clash of Champions 24, Scott Hall, May 27th, 1996 on Nitro, Kane at In Your House Bad Blood, and Y2J debuting to Interrupt the Rock on Monday Night Raw, August 9th, 1999. So that's four of the top five lists. We've got one left to go, and most of the rest of my top five lists were inspired by other people, some of my friends, some just on the internet. But this last one that I want to finish with is something that is near and dear to my heart and I complain about all the time, and now you get to hear me complain about it too. How lucky are you? It is the top five wrestling moves that aren't finishers that should be finishers. Now, some of these moves may have been finishers for people at one point in time, but in this day and age, these are moves that I don't think ever get a win anymore, ever. And it's really a shame because they're super, super impressive. Uh, The number five move that's not a finisher that should be is the moonsault. Now, I think Bam Bam Bigelow may have gotten a couple wins by a moonsault back in the day, but the sheer spectacle of the moonsault, combined with the impact that it would have if if this were a real contest, is ridiculous. I mean, you're using your body as a projectile to crash seven, eight feet, depending on your height, down on a person with the full weight of your body. And... You're doing a goddamn backflip in the process. Like, this move is the pinnacle of sports entertainment to me. And the fact that it's used as a dramatic two-count at best is absolutely absurd. Um, At least WCW allowed Kidman to win with the shooting star press, which is just an inverted moonsault, so we still get some glory there. But in general, the moonsault is a move that never finishes a match, and I don't understand it because it's impressive as hell. Number four, the power bomb. Simple, but deadly effective. I'm going to take you. I'm going to lift you six plus feet in the air. I'm going to drive you down onto a canvas mat with the entire weight of my body, driving your head and torso into the ground. If this was done on cement, this move would literally kill somebody. So I have a hard time believing that it can't keep somebody down for a three count. Now, like I said, there were people in the past, Kevin Nash, uh, Sid, 
had very effective power bombs. That was their finishers. Uh, Razor's Edge is kind of a, a variation on a power bomb. But in general, this is now a move that's just become just another spot. A lot of times, it's not even the end of the spot. A lot of times, we'll do the power bomb, lift the guy up, and do another power bomb, and that still doesn't get the finisher. That usually doesn't even get a count. They usually don't even go for a pin after that. So again, it's to me a move that is just too cool and too powerful to not end a match, and it's a shame that now it's just a throwaway spot. Number three on this list is the Inziguri. Now, before wrestling was all about athleticism and every single guy was a freaking gymnast, the Inziguri was truly a move to behold. I will always associate this move with Bad News Brown. It was his finisher, um, politically incorrectly named the Ghetto Blaster, which is a topic for another time. But the fact remains that it is a visually impressive move, and it's one of those moves that, just like the Powerbomb, if you applied it in real life, it would absolutely 100% knock you unconscious. It is a kick to the back of the head with your entire body being used as a pivot point, the driving force behind the kick. You get all of your weight and all of your momentum behind it, and then you take your foot, your leg, and you hit the person in the back of the head with it. You would absolutely be incapacitated for three seconds. Now it's just another opportunity for a thigh slap and to set something else up. But if, again, if we break down what the move actually is and what it does, the, ins- the Inziguri should be a finishing move. Number two on my list is the DDT. Um, variations of it are used as a finisher still, but this move or any of its variations should be exclusively used for a finisher because, again, let's take a look at what we're doing. I am going to, I've got your head in a lock. I'm coming down with all of my weight And that is forcing the crown of your head to spike into the mat, jarring your neck, jarring your spine, completely knocking the wind out of you. You would be be going to the hospital if someone did a DDT on you for real. People did have to go to the hospital. Ricky Steamboat had to go to the hospital when Jake Roberts DDT'd him on the outside. And it's so, it's such a dangerous move. And it's become a throwaway spot and it breaks my heart. Um, but what I will say is for the first four moves that I have mentioned on this list, the Inziguri, the DDT, the Powerbomb, and the Moonsault, all of these moves, while not typically a finishing move, have been somebody's finishing move. But the number one move on my list, to my knowledge, has never been a finishing move. I think it's won one match that I can think of off the top of my head, but it should absolutely be a finishing move anytime it's used, and that's the Superplex. I mean... Is there any move that is more devastating that gets done in almost every single match that never ends in a finish? I mean, it's a top rope spot. It's a high impact spot. It's visually impressive. You've got, you can do it in so many ways. Like it doesn't, you can be the, you know, a back suplex, any suplex off the top rope. I mean, my God, so many people have won with suplexes. Is there, Bailey. Bailey wins matches today with a belly-to-belly, a standard belly-to-belly suplex. That can put somebody away, but a superplex from the top rope can't get the fuck out of here. Like I said, I think the only match that I saw it actually finish with the superplex was Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan at Bash at the Beach 96, although technically that was off of a 
table that was propped up on the top rope. It didn't really, it's not like it made him taller or anything. It was just kind of a cool spot, a, a fun way to interact with the table, I guess. But that is the only time I can think of that a superplex finished a match. And I don't understand how that hasn't been someone's finishing move in the history of wrestling. Uh, if you know of someone that used it as a finishing move, please hit me up on Facebook or Twitter at Closet Champ. Let me know uh, what it was because I can't think of it off the top of my head and I'd be really interested to see. Um, maybe one day, I don't know, wrestling is cyclical, everything's cyclical. Maybe we'll get back to a time when finishing moves are a little bit simpler and maybe at that point someone will take a amazing move like the superplex and make a career out of it. But until then, it's going to be just another spot, just like the DDT, the Enziguri, the Powerbomb, and the Moonsault. And that's it, man. That's all I got for this. Uh, thank you so much for listening to my five top five lists and my Hell in a Cell very quick predictions. Again, one more time, I'm going to plug it, the Bob Culture Podcast. I'll be linking to it so you can hear my in-depth reviews and you get to see my beautiful face. So for all of you that are uh, missing this mug, you'll get to see it. I will link it on Facebook as soon as it drops. Until next time, I am your reigning, rarely defending, highly disputed champion of wrestling podcast, Mike Mueller. I'm going to take the count out loss and get out of here with my belt. Good night, everybody.